All right. So I started talking about this a couple weeks ago, and then uh, Sarah got back into the swing of things of, of speaking and, and doing her normal uh, routine of speaking. So let her speak for a couple weeks and get out what she needed to get out, and um, it was good. So we were talking about the table, um, talking about how um, coming to the table of God, there's something there for everyone. Um, so we t- started talking about it, and we talked about how kitchen tables in our house are like the center of everything. They're the junk pile. They're the place we eat. We, clean, just, we take the junk off, put it on the counter, eat dinner, and then put it back on, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, it's where our kids' projects happen. It's where our kids' first meals are at. That's where, you know, it's where our kids are doing homework and, you know, sitting around with their friends. And it was funny because a couple, uh, like the second week I started talking about this, people started saying, oh yeah, now I'm starting to realize what that kitchen table has or what the dining room table has or whatever. And they were starting to say, yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize what happens at your, your kitchen table. Um, ours is a little bit, our kitchen table is a little bit different than most of your kitchen table. Our kitchen table is like the uh, tables at Ponderosa. You never know who's going to be sitting there and how long they're going to be sitting there. Um, but those tables are just a, a piece of wood and four legs and they sit there, but there's something significant to it, to the household. It's where, you know, meals are made. It's where final meals are made. It's where, you know, kids learn to eat solid food and they start to, you know, do things that, you know, you normally wouldn't see them do. And they sit at the table. One time our oldest was sitting at the table eating dinner and she was like one or two. I came back. She was face down in the table. I thought she was dead. She had fallen asleep in her spaghetti. Um, yeah, that's a scary moment when you go run to the bathroom real quick and come back and your kid's face down in the table and you're like, shake her, shake her, wake up, wake up, you know. And yeah, she was just asleep. She looked at me like, eh. And she still looks at me like that in the mornings. You know. So, um, but the table provides, it when, it, when we have healthy families, when we have moms and dads in the home, when we have family, um, I'm going to say it, traditional family values, of traditional families of moms and dads sitting at the table having dinner with our kids. Um, what happens is kids have better emotional health. They have better physical health. They have, um, and it's just a time for us as a family to unplug. How many of you guys ever had to tell your kids, can you put the cell phone down at the table? Yes, you have all had to do that at one point. <laughs> Jared's over there telling it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's like, can I have my phone back? Yes. But, We, never, we don't really realize what that surface provides for our family. You know, I went and looked at kitchen tables one time, and I was like, they cost this much? What? I'm like, who? Why do they cost this much? I'm like, but there's something significant to it because it's a centerpiece in your house, and life happens around it. You get in arguments with your kids at it. You have discipline. You get in arguments with your wife, and then she disciplines you at the table, and then, you know, different things like that. You, t- you teach your kids how to have manners at the table, what fork to use, not to stab it like this, you know, how to, to cut. They, we teach our kids proper things at the table. But it's the core of our family. It's the core of our household because it's where a lot of everything happens. Messes happen. The dogs hide under the table so they can catch what falls off of the table. And 
how many of you guys have ever had it where, you know, you're having dinner and then like six people show up and then they're like, you're like, oh yeah, we can find another room and you kind of just move more down, move more down, go get the leaf. And they're saying people will come to that table. If it's a safe table, if it's a safe place and it's a place of uh, invitation and welcome, there will be people there. They will show up at that table. They will show up to eat dinner because they know it's a place for them to there, be there. So, when we look at it, we look at, at God, Sarah was talking about the heart of the Father last week. Um, if you look at the Father's table, there's always a seat for us there. There's always a place for us there. And we talked about this a, a couple weeks ago is the prodigal son. No matter what he did, his father still brought him back and set him at the table. And he didn't set him at the far end of the table with the servants or in the back table. He set him at the head of the table next to him. He set him by, Father set the son next to him. And that's the same way with Jesus. Jesus sits right next to the Father because when Jesus was on earth, he said, there's, there's this one thing you need to know. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but me. If that can be the only truth that Jesus taught, that was the main important truth, is no one comes and sits next to the Father, has room at the table unless you come through Jesus. In our world, uh, salvation is kind of... Uh, watered down now. It's like, you know, if I do good things, I go to heaven. If I didn't do good things and I just get saved at five seconds before I die, I get to go to heaven. Uh, if I don't have faith, I don't have works. I can just do whatever I want and every road leads to heaven and it doesn't work that way. Jesus says, I am the only road. I'm the only way. I am the only gate that, get, that allows you to go to heaven. But Jesus, when he was on earth, he taught us certain things. And so uh, the first thing was this, and I talked about this, restoration happens. Restoration happens at, at the table. When you come to, to the Father's table and you sit there, restoration will happen in your life. And then if you look at it, transformation happens. God's not going to restore you without transforming you. A lot of people want to come to the table and have restoration, but they don't want transformation. God's like, I'm going to restore things to you, but guess what? Your character has to grow in order for it to continue on. I think too many times we want to come to the table, belly up to the table and say, God, restore everything. Give me everything. I want everything that you have to offer and just sit there like it's an it's a, um, uh, all-night buffet and just eat whatever we want but not have any transformation. Trust me, if you eat at a buffet all night long, you will have transformation. But we have to, when we come to the Father, there has to be transformation. We can't stay in the same lifestyle we lived. We can't stay, even though we're born again, we can still choose to go back into that lifestyle. We're like, oh, I get my free ticket to heaven. Now I can still continue to live how I want to live. It doesn't work that way. You can do it that way. It just doesn't work very well. But transformation has to happen. God needs to transform us into something that he knows that we're supposed to be. A lot of times we don't, see, we don't see the big picture because if God allowed us to see the big picture, we would not be able to handle what is going on in our life. If God gave us all the knowledge and revelation that we would need for our life, we would blow it in like three days. We would just be a total mess. Because you would know what the end result was. Well, it, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to get to that end result. So God wants transformation to happen in our lives. So when we come to him and we give our lives to him, when we're born again, salvation, you say the prayer of salvation, that means you're giving yourself to him. That means you don't have rights to, to do what you want to do anymore. That means you have submitted yourself over to him, and he says, this is what I want you to do. So when, we tra- when he transforms us, when we, when we 
surrender ourselves to him and he restores us. He's going to transform you into something that he wants it to be. Not what you want, what he wants. That's the part of submission. When we submit ourselves to him, we give and say, hey, do with me what you want. It's like, what does it say? He says he's the potter and I am the clay. So he has the, the ability to mold us in his image. Not what we want. Well, I want to, I want to look like this God. I want to do this and I want to, you know, he's like, I'm going to mold you into my image. That's the only time in our lives that we should allow anyone to mold us into the image of what they want, is God, allowing God to mold us in our image. We should not mold our children into the image we want them. We should direct them and guide them with the way they need to go, but we should not allow us to mold our children in how we think they should be. We have to lead them in the ways of the Lord, but we don't, well, I want them to be this, so I'm going to teach them only this, and I'm going to lead them this, and I'm going to tell them they have to do this. It doesn't work that way. And if you do that, let me know how that works out. Um, because everyone has a different, different personality, different um, calling in our lives. So when God transforms us, it has to be unique to each person. You all have similar stories of what God has done, but they're all different. They're all unique. They all have their own DNA for each story that you have when it comes to what God is doing in your life or what has, he has done in your life. They all have different DNA, but they all have the same maker. God doesn't create everything in his own image to look exactly the same. He creates us in his image to be unique in everything that we do. So next thing is, is when, when you gather around the table, especially in our house, ministry happens in our house. We were sitting there talking with some people and they, um, we were just talking. There was like maybe five or six of us and we were just finished with dinner and we were just sitting there, and he says, now I understand what you mean by ministry happens at the table. I understand that now, because without even realizing it, it switched from stuffing our faces to talking about what God is doing. It, it's, it went from, hey, can I have more, to how, what is happening in life? What is God doing? What is God t- showing us? And ministry happens at the table because we allow it to happen at our table. If you don't allow ministry to happen at your table, it's because you're so focused on food and getting away from the table. But there's sometimes when we have to come to the table of God and say, I need to be ministered to, and we minister to other people. That's when we come here, we come to get fed. It's not your only meal. If this is your only meal, you're probably not healthy. But we come to get fed and we minister to each other. When we come to the table of the Lord, there's ministry that happens. It's a reciprocal thing between us and God and us and each other. We don't come just to, if we come just to get, out, get what we want out of the sermon, well, I didn't like that and I don't agree with that and I just want this and then I, and then I go home. That's not, that's not a healthy um, meal. That's not a healthy way of, of eating and, and coming to the table of God because, well, I don't like this and I don't like this, but I like this and I'm only going to take this little piece. You can't sustain yourself on morsels. You can't sustain yourself on crumbs that come from the table. You have to be fed fully. So, but when ministry happens, it comes out of a love for one another and a reciprocal thing that, hey, I care about you, so I'm going to minister to you. You care about me, so I'm going to minister to you. And then last week, we talked about wisdom. It was, or not last week, but last time I spoke, we talked about wisdom um, with the seniors. Biggest thing you got out of that was, whenever you're about to do something, ask, would an idiot do that? And if they would, don't do that. 
Easiest thing, easiest way to remember that. If, if you can remember anything of wisdom, remember that and ask yourself that every time you're about ready to do something. Like when you're standing on top of a bridge and you're like, I think I could make that if I jumped off that. That'd be okay. There's water down there. Ask yourself. All right. And then number five is acceptance. Acceptance happens at the table. You know, it's funny because this word that has really popped up in our culture in the last mm, five years is called inclusive. It's very inclusive. Not exclusive, inclusive. Well, let me, I don't think they realize that word has been used for thousands of years. They just really like to use that word today. It's just all inclusive for everybody. Everybody's welcome. Yes, that's called salvation. That's called the heart of the Father. That's inclusive. God says, I don't discriminate against who you are or where you've been or what you look like. You can come in. But there's only one way. There's a guy at the door and he's like, his name is Jesus. He's like, hey, what's going on? You got to go through Jesus' door to get there. And so acceptance, we, we want acceptance. In, I think everybody wants acceptance, right? We, we want people to care about us and we want people to like us. And in our culture, it's, got, it's gotten to a point where we've watered it down to a point where it doesn't matter. I mean, you could, you could think you're an alien on Mars and they're like, well, that's just what you believe. But we accept you for the, that way. Just to let you know, nobody is an alien from Mars. If you think that, I'm sorry, but that is wrong. And um, acceptance comes from God. If he created the world, if he created the universe, if he created us, acceptance is, he is the root of acceptance. But there's a, what happens in our culture, they don't want to have to pay a price for that acceptance. They want to scream about the price they've paid to receive acceptance, but they don't want to pay the price for acceptance. Oh, I had to do this and I had to do this and people finally accept me. No, God accepted you from the moment you were born. And he said, hey, I have a way for you to be part of who I am, my kingdom, my table coming to me. And you just have to have a conversation with Jesus real quick. It can be a 30 second conversation and it's that quick. Matthew 9, 10. You guys turn there real quick there if you want. So, Jesus called, this is when Jesus calls Matthew. So, if you guys remember, there's two tax collectors that Jesus talks to in in the Gospels, and that is Zacchaeus and Matthew. So, verse, uh, Matthew 9, verses 9 through Uh, We'll just keep going. Start in verse 9. And Jesus passed there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, so what's funny, what really struck, uh, struck out to me was this, is they asked the disciples and then Jesus heard it. So uh, my question is, is this, is were the, the Pharisees sitting within, so if I went up to Jordan and said, why does your teacher sit with sinners? If Jesus was sitting that far away, if Jesus was sitting that far away, he would have heard that conversation. Uh, uh, this is Jesus 
as God hearing what is being said and says, okay, let me tell you, let me explain to you what's going on. And when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I love Jesus, how he just little zingers at him, like, go and learn what this means. You should know, but you don't. You're a Pharisee. You study the law. You should know what this means, but go and find out what it means. So Jesus accepted Matthew. He called Matthew out of a life of cheating people out of their taxes and overcharging them and being un, kind of seedy and not honest with people. But when they asked him, they said, why are you sitting with those people? Because Jesus says, I don't come for the healthy. I come for the unwell. I don't come from the ones going to heaven. I come for the ones that are on their way to hell. But Jesus understood what acceptance was. And he understood what he accepted them and then he showed them a better way. He accepted them and said, hey, now it's time for transformation. He accepted them and said, now it's time for you to grow and change what you do. Same way with Zacchaeus. What did he do? He said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. I'm going to have dinner with you. I'm going to sit at your table. Again, Pharisees probably saw that. Why does your teacher sit with, you know, Jesus is like, I already had this conversation with you. You should have figured it out the first time. Um, but Jesus required Zacchaeus to have transformation in his life. He didn't say, you have to change now. But he said, I'm coming to your house. I'm going to sit with you. I'm going to show you what the right way is. I'm going to come and show you acceptance and that you are cared about. But there was an underlying requirement that something change. And what did it, I think what did it do in Zacchaeus' life is it changed him from being selfish to giving, but it gave him confidence in who he was and what God had created him to be. When there's acceptance, there's confidence that comes out of it. Man, I'm accepted. They love me. They accepted me. And I'm confident in what I'm doing now and what, where I'm going. It's the same way with our kids. We sit around the dinner table and we talk to them and they realize that there might be discipline, there might be correction, there might be some things. But you know what? They accept me. They love me. And there's a confidence that is built by our, by our children when they sit around the table with us. Um, what I love is um, when parents have dinner and then they tell their kids to go away from the dinner table so the adults can talk. Don't let me see, hear you say that because I'll slap you in the face. Um, I hate that. I absolutely, it bugs me because here's why is maturity doesn't come from playing with toys. Maturity comes from sitting with adults and learning from them and hearing from them, and it allows them to understand what mature conversations are. I'm not saying every conversation, but kids don't need to be pushed out of the table because we want to have an adult conversation, and the kids are a little too young to be there. No, the kids need to be there. Kids need to understand how adults function. I think too many times we try to push them away because we want to have a conversation. We don't want to be bothered. Do you think Jesus wanted to be bothered sometimes? I bet you there was a lot of people hanging around him. 
And if we're going to transform our lives into what he is, we have to be allowed to be bothered by the people around us while we're having conversations. Children belong at the table while we're having conversations. My kids would not be who they are and do what they do if they didn't have conversations at the table in their high chair, in their booster chairs, while we are having adult conversation with people. And it, what it did is it allowed them to be transformed and be confident in who they are because they learned more from sitting at the table with mom and dad and people their age than going and being shoved into the, into the side room with the toys and say, here, go do this. No, kids need to be around you. They need to understand what you're doing because it builds confidence in them because they understand wisdom is being imparted even by just trickle down. So as part of that, Matthew, or excuse me, Mark 2, verses 15. So Matthew's uh, real name was Levi. If you look at Mark, his name was Levi. And then you look at Matthew, and he's called Matthew. So you guys go figure that one out. Anyway, so, Mark 2, verses 13, says, Jesus went out beside the sea, and a crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed. And he reclined at the table in the house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his, and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and Pharisees, when they saw this, he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. Sound familiar to you? Um, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus heard them and says, Those who are well need no physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call the sinners. So, same scripture, different book. So when Jesus was sitting at the table... He, that acceptance that he was giving him was, was starting to, to build confidence in Levi slash Matthew, whatever his name was. Yeah. And what happened was is Jesus was speaking to him and imparting things to him. What happens at that table is impartation. What happens when our kids are at the table is impartation. You, you don't think, you think wisdom has to come out of uh, learning from doing things. No, in, Wisdom can come from impartation. Wisdom comes from our kids listening and we impart wisdom and they receive that wisdom and they store it and they say, that is wisdom. I'm going to hold on to that. But Jesus was imparting something to the people that were sitting there. When we sit at the table with God, when we sit with him as a father, he's imparting wisdom into us. He's giving us impartations of, of life and wisdom and how to live life and how to, to be a, a good son, daughter, father, mother, grandmother, grandfather, whatever it is, he's imparting things to us. But I think so many times we try to, we're so busy getting to the table, getting what we want from the table, that it's not what's at the table. Per se, what we're getting, it's who's at the table is what we get. There are things at the table that are healthy for us, but it's who is sitting at the table and what we get from them at that table is what it is is where the kingdom of God grows and it, where we grow from that. 
And that's why these all interlace with each other. You can't have one of these things that I've been talking about without the others. They all blend together because when we sit there and when we do this, God does work in us. So Matthew fifteen twenty one. You know what I love is Jesus, even when he was sitting at the table with Matthew and all the sinners and tax collectors, so-called sinners and tax collectors, and, and what, what they mean by sinners and tax collectors were probably people that today would be prostitutes, felons, and people that were of um, low quality of character in some areas. And Jesus was saying, I'm going to sit with you, but I'm also going to sit with people of higher stature. Jesus didn't really care about a social standing. Jesus was a carpenter. He didn't really care about, care about where you bank and where you go to work and what you do. Jesus was more concerned about who you were and how he could change your life. So, Matthew 15, verse 21. And I love this story. And Jesus went away from the mirror and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying. She said, Mercy, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Okay, so I want to stop right there and look at that. She said, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. So she didn't just call him Lord was a term that they would use for people of uh, wealth, power, um, influence. But she said, oh, Lord, capital L, son of David. She knew who he was. She was a Canaanite woman. She knew who she was. She said, you're Lord, but you're the son of David. She knew he was the Messiah. Son of David is not a term that was given out loosely. Son of David was a term that they knew when you called him that he was the Messiah. He was the chosen one. He was the one that was coming to set them free and deliver them. So this woman has faith. And that's what the heading above the scripture says. This is the faith of the Canaanite woman. And she said, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away. For she is crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right for me to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It sounds really kind of crude and rough. We'll get to that in a moment. And then she said, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So Jesus was not sent at that time and at that place for the Samaritans or the Canaanite people. He was sent to come and to minister to the Jewish people to tell them, hey, that Savior, that Messiah that, that the prophets have spoken about for generation after generation after generation, I am that one. I am the Messiah. But what was happening is his, his news of what he was doing was spreading. And it, it, you, how many of you guys know when, you, when something cool is happening, it's not just going to be localized to that area. Eventually it starts to spread. Things start to spread. 
things start, people start hearing news. Oh, really? That happened? That's going on? Oh, we got to go there. We got to go see that. That's like some of the big revivals that have happened in the last 50 years. You know, they start in Ontario, they start in, or in Florida, and people come from all over the world to come he- hear what's going on and see what's going on. But Jesus had started his ministry. He said, it's not my time to minister to you. But she said, even the, even the dogs find the crumbs that fall off the master's table. Even the dogs get something. Y'all, any of you have dogs? You know those dogs are sitting right under the table. They're like waiting. They're like, come on, drop something. Drop something good. They're like, oh, it's just bread. Come on, waiting for some meat, waiting for some meat. You know, they're waiting. Those, our animals are usually waiting under the table or looking up at us during meal going like, hey, you got anything for me? And at that point, she was doing the same thing. She's like, I know you have something for me. I'm not saying she's a dog. I'm just saying. But she's looking up and saying, Master, I know you have something. I know who you are. I know you're the the Messiah. I know you're the chosen one. I know that you can heal my daughter. And I'm asking you to do something. I'm asking you to throw a crumb to me. So Jesus says, I was sent only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So in that culture, Samaritan people were known as goats. And the Israelites called themselves the sheep because they followed God. It's a whole big thing with Abraham's sons, uh, um, Isaac and Jacob, and some things that they didn't do right. And we won't get into that. It's a whole other day. But Jesus said, I've only come for the lost sheep at this moment. But she said, I know you have something for me. And with Jesus' compassion, he says, you know what? I'm going to give you what you need. It's just a, it's a tiny crumb. It's that morsel from the Father's table that's come, um, that I have sitting here. I'm going to give you that. And he drops her just that crumb, but that crumb was enough to heal her daughter immediately. It wasn't even just healing. It was casting out demons. So Jesus didn't even have to go, talk to them, didn't have to go minister to her, didn't have to lay hands on her. He just said, I'm going to drop you a crumb from heaven. And that crumb is going to push out anything in your daughter that's unclean. It's going to heal her. Because if you read in the Bible, what happened to most of the people that were possessed by demons? They threw themselves in the fire. They, they were, you know, cut themselves. They, they were always injuring themselves. So I, I have a feeling that her daughter was probably in the same boat as some of the um, possessed people in the New Testament when we look at Jesus' ministry and Paul's ministry. And he says, you know, I'm just going to throw you a crumb from the table of the Father from heaven and it's all going to be done. How much power is that to drop a crumb from your table to one person to, to, to destroy the, the gates of, of hell in that person, to destroy the, and push out anything that is from the enemy in there? And what does it say? He says, I love your faith. It's great. And he goes, be it done for as you desire. It says her daughter was healed instantly. So here's the thing is she wasn't there with her. She had to go home, find the report of what happened and come back and report that. But I love how He's like, I'm just going to heal your daughter. We're not even going to 
We're not even going to have to go talk to her. We're not going to have to lay hands on her. We're not going to have to command the demons out. I'm just going to drop, I'm just going to have my father drop a crumb from heaven and it's going to take care of it. Healed instantly. But what happens is, is this, is Jesus healed her instantly, but we always will have these people in our life. Look at the disciples did. They said, Lord, they begged him, please just have her go away. God is, is, is a healer. He's proven that he's a healer. And I know in many of your lives, he's proven to, to heal your bodies. But you always have those disciples saying, oh, just, just, nope, just go away. Don't, that, that's not for today. That's not what you need. That's not, God doesn't do that. How, that's not how God works. How do we know how God works? I love how people tell me that God works this way. Really? Do you know how he works? There's very few situations that we know how God works. Well, God doesn't work that way today. He doesn't heal people today. Well, really? My wife's still alive. Mel's arm's better. Other people have been healed. But we're going to always have those naysayers. Oh, just don't do it this way. Don't do it this way. Oh, just, we can't have that here. We, that's, that's embarrassing to pray for the sick. And they, what if they don't recover? They don't recover, but what if we don't pray for them? And they could recover. But they're like, oh, Lord, just send her away. She's annoying. If you noticed, a lot of the women in the Bible were annoying. <laughs> I'm not being mean. The woman with the issue of blood, she, she, she was persistent. Yes, very persistent. Yes. They annoyed the, the woman um, and the judge. She's like, I'm just going to keep bugging you. until I'm going to come there every day. I'm going to bug you until you give, give me what I want. Yes, that's right. That's right. But they were persistent in what they were doing. If you look at her, she was willing to walk however far she was because he wasn't ministering in those areas, a lot of those areas. He was ministering where Jewish people were. And a lot of Canaanites did not live where. So she's willing to leave her daughter to go find out if he will even entertain her request. But the disciples, they wanted her gone. Like, ah, she's just annoying. Tell her to go away. Because she's probably, if you look at Jesus, he passes through Jericho and the blind man, he's paralyzed and blind. He cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And the people around him are getting annoyed. Shut up, go away. Shut up, go away. We're trying to hear what he's going to say. They tell him, shut up, go away. What does Jesus do? He turns and he's like, wait a minute. He said, son of David. So you look at those moments in the Gospels where people call Jesus for who he is. Not just like the lepers who say, heal me. Well, prophets healed. Other people healed because they had the power of God on them. But he called out son of David because he knew who this was. They knew the power that he carried. They knew what he could deliver. He knew what was going on with Jesus. He didn't see Jesus do anything and say, oh, yep, that's definitely the Messiah. No, he heard what Jesus did, and he said, this is the Messiah. 
He made that choice in his brain to say, this is the Messiah. And I think so many times the people around us say, no, God doesn't heal. God doesn't do this. God does, no, that's not how God works today. That died with the last, when John on the Isle of Patmos. Don't tell, get me started on that one. Um, but that's when we have to start to say, no, hush. Be quiet, be still. Go away. Do it lovingly, but tell them to, to keep their mouth shut because that's not, how God wor- that's not how God works. No, I've seen God work. I don't know how he works, but he works. I don't know when he's going to work or how he's going to do it or when, when he's going to do it. And some of the times you least expect him to do it, he works. But he's going to heal. I remember a song growing up, and it said the ultimate healing is when we, when we die. There, and it was, he was trying to tell how healing doesn't happen on earth today. I'm like, boy, you better shut your mouth. Fast forward through that tape. I was fast forwarding over that song. I was like, you will not t- sing that song to me. But that's the thing is we have disciples. We'll have people around us that are always going to be naysayers of God doesn't work. Yes. Things happen. Tragedy happens in our lives. But God heals. The next one's kind of tough sometimes. Remember how I talked about arguments happening in our kitchen table? Yeah, arguments happen at kitchen tables. They do, they do. Everybody's kitchen tables. Everybody's like, you guys have, no, you guys have arguments around your kitchen table too. Don't start with me. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, we might, have more con- we might have more arguments around our kitchen table, I think. We have a, um, a house of very spirited people that may not, uh, they may not agree in everything. And all of the Richards family said amen. Um, even Lana, who is in children's church right now. But, um, but sometimes you're going to disagree at the table. And sometimes our kids will tell us that we're the worst parents ever and that they hate us. And yes, it happens at our house. Our kids will tell us that. that sometimes we're the worst parents ever. But usually they come back within like five minutes and be like, what did I just say? No, I didn't. You know, they realize what they said and they're like, yeah, that really isn't true. Um, but correction happens at tables. You correct your children. Not, and I'm not talking like bring the hammer down on them, but correcting them like, hey, you don't use your, you don't use your uh, knife like that, you know, stabbing your brother in the hand or, you know, and all the boys are like, yep, I wanted to do that. Or you don't do the knife thing between your fingers at the kitchen table with the steak knives, you know, and that kind of stuff. You know, um, but we ha- there's been times where we've had to correct our children at the kitchen table. We teach them. Correction is part of teaching. Correct- Everybody thinks correction is like this, this mean thing that we do when we don't agree with them. no. Correction is, is part of raising our children. It's part of guiding them and directing them and saying, hey, probably not the best idea. We did this when we were du- young and dumb. Don't do this when you're young, so you don't have to be dumb. So when we correct, it, what correction is, is it's not a, uh, a spiritual or um, verbal or you know, emotional beatdown. It's a, a, it's a small course correction. You don't, I was watching um, a movie on um, World War II bombers, and they would course correct by one degree, and if one degree was off, 
If they were off by one or two degrees, their, their bombing missions could completely miss where they were going. One degree, you would think, oh, that's nothing. But one degree of correction is either, of course correction could be off or on. And so for us as parents, and as the father does it too, we correct our children. And it's not like, you go this way because you're completely wrong. No, it's just a, it's a little redirection. It's a, it's a movement of our children's will. It's a movement of our children's understanding. And he does the same thing for us. If you've never been corrected by God, really need to think about your relationship with him because do you have a relationship with him? Because if he's not correcting us, if he's not changing that one degree and saying, hey, do it this way, do it this way, don't do this, do this. And it's not a browbeating ever. He doesn't, he doesn't come in and carry his big stick and, and shake it at us and go, you're going to be, if you don't do this, I'm going to send you to hell. God corrects us because he loves us. He corrects us because he sees us heading in a dangerous way. And when we're first born again, he's like, "Uh uh-oh, you didn't do that right. And then sometimes he has to just say, stop, you're going to do this. And as we get older, sometimes it's a swat (laughs) when we're being dumb. When we're out of the will of God for our life, when we're living in sin, sometimes it's just a swat and saying, you need to stop. You need to listen. I remember there was a couple times when our youngest was, she was a self, very self-aware. Um, by the time she was two, she was like, you can't discipline me. You can't do anything that's going to harm me. You better stop that. No. You better stop that. We'll give you spanking. Smack herself in the butt and look at us and just gla- stare us down. It's hard not to, um, to laugh when your two-year-old does that and then just kind of looks back at you and just kind of like stares at you and glares at you. She does it now. That's the scariest glare ever. <laughs> oh, that is a scary glare. Um, but when she's two and then she, you know, she got that diaper on and, you know, or whatever and she's like, mm, and you're like, you know, trying not to laugh at your child when she does that is the hardest thing because you're like, I need to discipline this child. She needs to, but I'm trying not to crack up and just bust out laughing because it's so funny what she just did or when she picks up the timeout chair and throws it at you. That wasn't cute. No, that wasn't cute. That was a, 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 a nice SWAT course correction <laughs> that we had to do. But, but course correction and, and discipline and correction are not meant to be dangerous. They're meant to be keep you away from danger to remove you from unsafe areas, that one degree course correction of how it's going to change your life. If a a World War II bomber can be off by one degree and completely miss what they're doing, how much more in our life can we do that? Be off just a tiny bit. Get trapped in false beliefs, weird religious practices and traditions weird ideas of how women should behave in church, how families should be, how we should, you know, live our lives. God's like, hey, just a one degree. We all remember those times when we were living our life when God gave us a swat, when we needed that swat. And he's like, hey, stop. You need to stop what you're doing. You need to listen to what I'm saying. And there's times in our lives where we're sitting at the kitchen table 
and we have to correct our children. But there's times where we're sitting at God's table and he's like, stop it right now. You ever interrupted your kid and they're just going off and you're just like, stop right now. You raise that hand to them and you're like, you stop talking because what you're saying is wrong. (laughs) But no, we've done that. We've had that done to us by our parents probably too. There's times at the table God has to say, stop. You listen, you hear what you're saying because it's not right. But he's going to correct us because he loves us, not because he's mad at us, not because he's angry, because he wants to punish us, because he loves us and he wants us to be focused on where he wants us to go. Our job as parents is to help our kids get to a point where they can take care of themselves. Still, they're always going to be dependent on their parents because they love their parents and their parents love them. But God's choice in lo- for our lives is to get us to a point where we can take care of ourselves, but be dependent on him and always come back to him. We know that our kids ever had issues. They can always come back home and we can help them out. They can sit at the table. We can talk it out. We can eat ice cream, whatever it is, and we'll work it out. God's the same way. He says, you know, anytime you need to come back to the table, you come back here and we're going to work this out. We're going to, I might do the hand. I might do the shh. I might do the shh but he's going to correct us and he's going to direct us where we need to go. So many times we're like, well, I'm just too busy to to have that conversation with God. God's like, I ain't too busy to have that conversation because we need to have a conversation. And sometimes God just gives us a little nudge. It's just that, remember when your kid's a little, they're walking through the store and you want them to go, you just kind of tap them on the shoulder to keep them moving where you want them to go or you just tap them on the back. My kids, I would just, hey, let's go. And he, he directs us and he guides us where we are supposed to go. I can't imagine being God because being our father is like herding cats. He, I mean, we're, we're all over the place. We're like a kid that's had way too much sugar running around the house screaming, going, ah! And he, but he's loving and he's kind and he says, I'm going to take care of you and we're going to get you off the sugar and we're going to direct you back to where you need to go. We're going to direct you where you need to go because I know what's best. Let's pray.